Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Fogelsang, and this is episode number 501. As part of our Smithsonian Associates streaming series, our guest today is Mark Lapadula. Mark Lapadula will be appearing via Zoom at the Smithsonian Associates program titled Four Films That Changed America. For details about Mark Lapadula's Zoom presentation, please check out our website. But we have Mark Lapadula today for an excellent preview of his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. While most works of cinema are produced for mass entertainment and escapism, a unique minority have had a profound impact on our culture. Whether intentionally or not, some movies have brought social issues to light, changed laws, forwarded ideologies, both good and bad, and altered the course of American history through their resounding impact on society. Our guest today, Mark Lapadula, a playwright, screenwriter, film producer, and senior lecturer in film and media studies at Yale University, will be discussing all of these issues among seminal films like I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, The Graduate, Jaws, and Philadelphia. We'll discuss clips from each film and what they reveal and what they can tell us about the social and political climates in which they were created and their significance today. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone, playwright, film producer, and senior lecturer, Mark Lapadula. Mark Lapadula, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. This is going to be a great interview. These films, and we're going to talk about them. The title of your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates is Four Films That Changed America. I just think these films that you've selected are fantastic. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. But why don't you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? And and in particular, since we're all on Zoom, and I know you teach and you're a professor, you use Zoom a lot. How are you going to, how are you going to use Zoom here to engage our audience? Well, I have a lot of experience now with Zoom because all classes at Yale, for the most part, are taught through Zoom. So I happen to be very fortunate because I show a lot of film clips in my seminars. Uh, Zoom is the perfect platform for it. So the transition to Zoom was quite easy. I guess maybe there are other types of courses where there's like hands-on things that you just wish you could be live and in person. Uh, Obviously, live and in person is the ideal uh, situation, but this is really the next best thing. And it's, it's just been very easy. Uh, we should be able to show some very high quality film clips, which I can start and stop. And I can like talk about certain sections of that moment and then let it move on. It's very, uh, effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure It, it really, this will lend itself to a wonderful presentation from you. And and the four films are, are just excellent. I know my audience is going to be familiar with them, but I'll just mention them real quickly. Uh, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, The Graduate, Jaws, and Philadelphia. You picked some wonderful films there too, Mark Labadula. Why don't you tell us how specifically these four films had an impact on, on our society? Because each is from a very different era in American history. I do think maybe there might be certainly one of them I'm a fugitive from a chain gang that many people might not be familiar with. Its influence has been pretty profound uh, over filmmakers that came later from Stuart Rosenberg, who made Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman in 1967, to Frank Darabont with his Shawshank Redemption, even Oh Brother Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers film from 2000 with George Clooney. That has 
a chain gang sequence. It is a very influential film directed by Mervyn Leroy, but I'm really interested in sort of, well, the message that these movie makers are trying to get across. And most of them, especially at a time like the 1930s with America gripped in a Great Depression, uh, they definitely had uh, somewhat of an agenda with the way they fashioned their narratives and what they were trying to say with their narratives. And in this one particular, for example, obviously its main target is the way these inmates are horribly treated inside these, uh, you know, enclosed societies, which are these chain gang penitentiaries, uh, work camps. But, and, you know, nobody really knew what was really going on in this film. I mean, people literally wrote their congressmen in those days, mm. men, uh, to, you know, demand change and change did happen. There were, was legislation actually put on the books as a result of a movie coming out exposing the sort of horrors of this system. But there's a section in it where we actually examine this young man who's a recent, uh, you know, soldier, you know, combat veteran who's returned from the Great War. And to me, that is going to be a sequence that I'm definitely going to highlight because it has probably one of the most profound and one of the most powerful moments that you've ever witnessed in cinema ever. And if this is a movie you've never even heard of, well, then you obviously have to go back and see uh, this film from 1932. What is sad is that the issue that it's talking about, how our veterans, especially our combat veterans, really are forgotten, you know, really are the sort of lost generation. Mm. Uh, it would be nice if it was something that was relegated to the pages of history and we could say, oh gosh, really, isn't that awful the way they treated them back then? But no, it's something that just every generation, I mean, Korean War veterans, Vietnam War veterans, Persian Gulf War veterans, uh, the sequence resonates today and is very powerful today because what his situation is, Paul Muni's character, James Allen is the name of the character. It hasn't changed, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, we really are, um, you know, we're all telling them, thank you for your service and everything else. Mm -hmm. And we say that we're behind and support our troops. But when it really comes down to it, when they need us the most, somehow we're distracted. And I mean, that's all of us. That's our, our president. This is our senators and congressmen and women. These are our local officials and legislators. And, you know, regular people like me and you, or you and I, we all have sort of dropped the ball when it comes to the care they need. And I mean, a great sort of index of that would be the fact that we have something for wounded warriors, like there's some kind of charity for wounded warriors. What? Because what? We're not taking care of these wounded warriors? Mm. That they have to rely on the kindness of strangers mm. to get the care that they need? So these are big, serious themes, and these are very important issues, searing issues that these filmmakers are dealing with. And so, yeah, I mean, if you go to Philadelphia, the other end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. Philadelphia is a film that uh, at the time that it came out, the AIDS virus was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Now it's a chronic illness. Uh, these antiretroviral drugs have made it so that people can have a semblance of normalcy in their lives and they can extend their lives. Uh, up until that point, though, uh, a lot of scientists, a lot of drug companies, the society itself, they sort of thought it was an isolated problem within a certain type of group demographic in America. And 
they sort of, again, turn their back on these individuals that were really suffering. But a movie came out that helped to make people say, hey, you know what? Wow, this is something that we need to really look into. This is something that we really need to create a sense of change from what this sort of lacks, uh, you know, not much, of, not much enthusiasm to sort of try to really push the scientists and the drug companies to come up with these new drugs and treatments, but also just to try to understand what these fellow Americans, these fellow human beings are going through. Mm-hmm. And see, the fact that they had Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington starring in it, that there was music by Neil Young and Bruce Springsteen, uh, was very clever on Jonathan Demme's part, the director, who came off of Silence of the Lambs. And when you make a movie like Silence of the Lambs that wins all these Academy Awards for everybody, you know, Jodie Foster, you know, um, uh, Hannibal Lecter, uh, what's his name? Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. um, he, you know, he won, everybody won. And mm-hmm. he got best picture, he got best director. It, it was fantastic. He had the power to do whatever he wanted. And here he decided to make a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Wow. But unfortunately, it really took someone that successful that could then take that kind of risk to make a movie like this. And the fact that a studio even got behind it is sort of startling. So, yeah, because we like Tom Hanks and we can identify with Tom Hanks and humanize that character, we realize that a movie like Philadelphia is not just a film about someone who's dying of AIDS, although it is, and too many people have died of AIDS and continue to be um, dying of AIDS, but just not at the numbers that they once we once were experiencing when this movie came out. But it's a movie that just reminds us that no matter who we are, everyone, no matter what their nationality or their religion, no matter what their age or their race, no matter what their sexual orientation or their disability or capability or economic status, everyone in this country deserves equal protection under the law. Mm -hmm. And that is what is so startling and powerful about that film, Mm -hmm. right? It reminds us these things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in a, in a world that we're in right now, a lot of these themes, <laughs> you know, we really are wrestling with them, whether we know it or not, you know, to this day. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, that they're timeless, mm-hmm. kind of unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them do make change happen, but the change is not all-encompassing. It's not the panacea that we really are looking for, because human beings still have these flaws that they sort of pass on to the next generation and they, they just become the norm and what's accepted. And it's sometimes, you know, a movie or something, it can be a book, it could be a play, it could be whatever. It sort of gets people talking. It gets people thinking along lines that they go, Oh, well, this needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Mark, I wonder, you're, you're a, you're, you have an MFA in, in, in playwriting from uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop, very prestigious. I wonder, are, are, you, are you chomping at the bit to write something today about today's political and social climate? I mean, I just, I would be really just, I think it's exciting to think about what might come in the way of film from some of today's social and political climates. And, and we have right. these wonderful films to look back on and say, yeah, this can be done. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny you say, I mean, if you're going to talk about my own personal work, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, mainly these days I am writing screenplays and Mm -hmm. there's a new screenplay that I have that does, I hope, um, you know, it would be nice, (laughs) right, if it wants to uh, help back this film. (laughs) It's called Out of Nowhere and what it deals with is the, uh, well, sort of the epidemic in America 
of rage against race mm. and the mass violence that takes place that just seems to explode, erupt, and oftentimes baffles individuals as to what was the origin and the motivation for such a, you know, a mass killing. People are still asking, you know, what was the motivation of the individual that shot all those innocent people at the concert in Las Vegas from the hotel high rise, mm -hmm. right? They don't know. And so that's to me is, um, it's something that needs to be addressed. And so this script that I'm actually just putting the finishing touches on right now, um, called out of nowhere. Uh, that's what I'm trying to examine. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm examining it through the point of view of a young female reporter who's mixed race. And so the idea is that there is indeed in America, there's this incredible racial divide, but also there are those individuals that sort of, they sort of straddle both worlds, not often being fully integrated into or accepted by their own, if you know what I mean, because mm -hmm. one side sees them as the other, the other side sees them as the other side. And so I, mixed race individuals to me, my wife is mixed race. I do find that, um, an interesting position for someone to find themselves in. I mean, it's beyond interesting. It's, it's something, sometimes it's quite dangerous. It's sometimes quite tragic that, uh, you know, that w what is going on with so many police shootings. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I can talk about this cause I taught the police in New York city for seven years. Mm -hmm. I taught them public speaking at the John Jay college of criminal justice, preparing them to go before grand juries. And, uh, the majority of them were amazing individuals, extremely, stressed out in this job, underpaid, overworked. This was at a time when New York City had the highest homicide rate in its history, you know, the late 80s, early 1990s. Um, it was a whole different world than it is today. Uh, obviously, the pandemic has made New York an even, you know, a different world than it was. But what we're talking about, there were like 2,600 homicides in New York in the 19, early 1990s per year. And there have been years where there have been under 300 recently. So, you know, what has been going on? But I did have a few students that you could say probably had some dangerous impulses on the job as, as mm. police officers. Mm. You could just tell from their speeches and just their interactions. And, uh, you know, they say, well, you know, oh, well, just there's only one bad apple. But the old phrase is, you know, the one bad apple sort of rots everything. Mm -hmm. The whole bunch has to be thrown out. And so for how many police do a great job when there's one that doesn't do his or her job properly, it really does ruin the reputation of all of them. Now, there's a film that I show in other lectures that will be coming up. Uh, hopefully this will become a series. And it's uh, George C. Scott in the uh, Joseph Wambach novel, uh, The New Centurions. Where he's a Los Angeles cop just on the edge of retirement after 20 years. And there's a scene where he goes into a very low, uh, you know, lower, you know, class housing development where he's going to be questioning some quote unquote illegal immigrants that haven't been paying their rent. And supposedly they've been accused by the landlord that they pulled a gun on him. He didn't see the gun, but they told him they were, they were going to shoot him. And so he goes in there and we're thinking, oh boy, this is going to result in a really, <laughs> a really not very nice situation. Mm. And the reason I remembered that movie is I saw it when I was a kid, when I was 12 in Washington, D.C. at the MacArthur Theater. There's a scene and you will never forget it. 
what happens in this sequence. And it's something that, uh, again, my job is to, I think, in addition to maybe trying to have people look at classic films that they've seen a lot of times to see something that they didn't see in these films before. So therefore it is exciting to talk about psycho by Hitchcock or Orson Welles, citizen Kane. If indeed I'm effective or I'm successful and they come out saying, gosh, I've seen that many times. I didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's also those films that people don't even know. They're not on their radar that actually have sequences that are startling beautifully shot, incredibly well acted, powerful in what they have to say, and timeless in what they have to say. And that would be an example like that sequence in the New Centurions, when with his new rookie, this, this cop goes up, and when they speak Spanish, his new rookie can respond in Spanish, because it's a young Eric Estrada before mm. chips, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. And I'm thinking, a guy's been on the job 20 years, this white cop in Los Angeles, he doesn't know a thing that these Hispanic, right? Residents of this housing complex. Uh, he doesn't know a word that they're saying. Uh, yeah, because a lot of people might say, well, when you come to America, you speak, you speak our language. Mm-hmm. And so he's supposed to serve and protect everybody. So it is an interesting sequence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we, we are successful with this one, Films That Changed America, if it gets the response that I'm hoping it's going to get, uh, I'll be back, and then we'll do the story of American film. We'll do the four greatest American movies. We'll do the greatest comedies. We'll do maybe the genius of Hitchcock or the genius of Kubrick. But see, all of this stuff is exciting because cinema really is, for the 20th century, the greatest form of artistic expression. I mean, yes, there were great artists, and yes, there were great novelists, and there were great playwrights. But how many people really do go to plays? Mm-hmm. And when they go to plays, they're not necessarily going to the kind of plays that were written by George Bernard Shaw or Harold Pinter, even Sam Shepard now, who has passed away. And his plays are sort of in our rearview mirror. People go to theater because they want to see a big spectacle. And so there's a lot of special effects. It's music. It's this. It's that. And in and of itself, that's all great. Mm-hmm. But where the music, where the cinema has the most power are in those those serious plays or serious comedies, right? That dealt with serious issues. It was Joe Orton who said comedy is serious business and that's why tyrants fear it, Mm. right? Um, It was Eugene Inesco who said all plays are in essence detective stories. Indeed, there are serious mysteries to be solved here. Well, those mysteries that probably most of them will never fully be solved, but at least they have to be identified and we have to try, we have to give it a shot, multiple attempts to do so. And, um, well, the cinema has sort of taken over for that. The question is, is the cinema now able to continue its tradition from the 20th century into this new millennium? Um, It appears that it's not having the kind of power that it once wielded. I mean, how many movies now change America? Like, what would you think? I mean, well, you'd be hard-pressed, Right. So the series that I do on this, even when I do the long version where it's like 10 films or eight films, not just four, but we only have time for four. Um, yeah, we can start in the 1920s. We could start in the 19 teens with Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. But we sort of end up with Philadelphia in the early 90s mm-hmm. because movies after that really aren't necessarily changing society. I mean, they might be changing you personally. They might be having a set. You might be using some of the lingo um, from Harry Potter, you know, in your everyday life. 
I mean, I'm somebody that I, I quote a lot of Dr. Strangelove, just in my everyday life. There's a few <laughs> lines that just seem to come out. Right. Same with uh, Blazing Saddles. And mm-hmm. although Blazing Saddles today way. is not, you know, seen mm. uh, in the same, with the same uh, sort of, it's not regarded in the same way as it was in the 1970s and 80s, uh, certainly in the way it was meant. Uh, people today have a hard time with that movie. But that's the thing about art. It does change over time. Mm-hmm. And certain things that might have been acceptable or certain things that seemed pretty daring and pretty um, provocative, well, they kind of, well, as the years go on, they sort of lose that, that, that edge. But see, the best films don't. Mm-hmm. See, there's something going on in Citizen Kane. There's something going on in Psycho, 1960, Citizen Kane, 1941. Something going on in Dr. Strangelove, early 1960s, Godfather 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. 1972 and 74, they just don't get old. They don't age. And so those are the kind of films, too, that need to be examined as to what is this phenomenon uh, of perseverance mm-hmm. that could not have been necessarily in any way, shape, or form anticipated by the, by the artists who were behind the making of these great movies. Mm-hmm. Right? They did the best they could to make a movie that sort of spoke to their time, spoke to some issues, you know, they were hoping to write, have it be successful enough so they could make another movie after this one. They don't want to be a one-trick pony. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on these directors. The more daring they were with trying to say something that was controversial, that would get people kind of maybe reacting in ways that were like, oh, I, I don't think this is appropriate that a movie, you know, sort of tries to expose me to this. They were maybe going to, you know, shorten their careers. Mm-hmm. And so a guy like Stanley Kubrick had to leave America in order to make the movies he really wanted to. But that meant that his productivity then was cut down considerably. Instead of a movie every year, every other year, it became a movie every five years, every decade, every, right? The last one was, well, like 13 years between Full Metal Jacket, uh, 12 years, and Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. which was his last film, unfinished. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we'll never know what fully it would have been had he, you know, lived. Yeah, with with today's technological advancements, you probably could make a film every six months, every 12 months. It might not have the same depth and, and it might be right. a completely different set of messages. But yet filmmakers are using some of this technology. I mean, my my iPhone has a remarkable video camera on it. And so... There are lots of ways for filmmakers to share. I mean, my hope is that your screenplay is going to get picked up and, and made into a great <laughs> film. And you can probably do a lot of these kinds of things, uh, you know, right. very much on your own kind of DIY. And so filmmakers clearly are right. sharing their messages in different ways. That is absolutely true. The question is, is how steep are they on the shoulders of the giants that came before them? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, is there a, a reverence for these Filmmakers of the past, you know, good, bad, and ugly, mm-hmm. that they then, you know, are are working off of, you know, just how far they advance the ball down the field, or are they just coming to it as mainly technological, a technological generation that mm-hmm. is able to master, yes, the these cameras and digital editing and you know, digital cameras. We want substance. See, so I, I kind of agree in the sense that I don't need the film to be all these really expensive production values. I really want a good story. Mm-hmm. Hence, I don't want to go to the Broadway show that 
is just really expensive and there's a lot of flair. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's fun once in a while. Sure. And it's great that for the economy that those things exist, I would rather be at the, you know, like when I lived in London, go to a theater upstairs above a pub late at night, you know, it's almost midnight and there's this play that has so much heart that some, somebody you haven't even heard of wrote and you're just astounded at the performances. And like, sometimes it would only be like 15, 20 people in the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all they could really fit in. Mm-hmm. And yet these actors gave their, you know, heart and soul to this role. So I guess it's the main thing is like nurturing artists. I mean, nurturing the voice and every generation has to have certain voices that are certainly heard in order for the, I guess, the social conscience, conscience of that generation to really kind of find itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, where, what is going on now? I mean, see, who are the filmmakers now that, that are, I do think a, a Deborah Granick, uh, she did uh, Winner's Bone. Uh, a few years ago, Kimberly Pierce, when she did Boys Don't Cry. These were very powerful films, mm-hmm. but uh, that's a whole other issue. Um, most people, when they make a really successful film, like Kimberly Pierce's Boys Don't Cry, won the Oscar for um, you know Best Actress. It, it was nominated for a lot of things. It was nine years. Hilary Swank won the Best Actress Oscar. But how many years was it till she made her next film? Nine years. Hmm. Why would it take her nine years to make her next film? And Deborah Granick, it took like almost, I don't know, but like almost eight or seven or eight years for her to make her next film, which is very good after Winner's Bone that starred Jennifer Lawrence. You see, we still have an industry itself that is not giving opportunity to everybody from women to people of color to certain points of view, certain types of stories that need to be told. I mean, where is the Asian American experience in American cinema? Um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, I guess, is one of them. But I mean, is that the limitation of all that it is or a kung fu movie? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I lectured years ago at University of Pennsylvania and said, look, I mean, it was the late 90s. I said, we need to see these stories because, again, you can't expect people who don't know that experience to to write them. You want them to be authentic. You want them to re- be real. So, you know, my job, my goal, you know, at Yale is to to try to get these people to really be brave enough to tap into the real material that they come from. Mm-hmm. That if they really could really look at it and really examine it. And yes, all artists distort reality to serve their dramatic purposes. Shakespeare did it. He rewrote the whole British Chronicle, you know, the British Chronicles in order to do it. Um, you know, certain people that were multiple people, he kind of created a composite of them and he made one character. Uh, with all the in- most interesting attributes to that little coterie of individuals uh, that had been in the court or whatever, the royal court. This is what you do. But like the message, like what you have to say is something that is authentic and genuine and it has to get across because, you know, as people, right, we don't just go to be entertained. We, we enter- want to be entertained, but we want to kind of walk away with something that is really memorable. Mm-hmm. We want to be marked I mean, the greatest art marks you for life, right? There's certain paintings you've looked at and you've never gotten over looking at that beautiful painting. And it might not have been beautiful in the sense of aesthetically, it was like, oh, it was pretty. It might have been horrific what that painting was suggesting, but it was beautiful in the way that its message touched you, right? And you'll never forget it. And that could be a painting, that can be a song, that can be a symphony, that can be something that's a combination. And see, what makes cinema so great is that it is, well... Classical composers have been 
sort of smuggled into the collaboration. I mean, most film scores are based on, I mean, Wagner is being used when Darth Vader enters the room. <laughs> I mean, John Williams. So, I mean, he's standing on the shoulders of that giant in mm -hmm. order to make, you know, his great symphonies or his great soundtracks. But then it's also dialogue. It's all like theater. It's also, well, visual, just like art and photography. And yes, the fact that it shoots through a camera, these still frames, you know, 24 frames per second. And we have a flaw in our iris that enables us to not distinguish these individual frames. It looks like motion. It looks like, like a mirror of life. Yes, and it, it starts conversations about life. And, and I think film still does that. Would you agree? I think so, yeah. I just don't know if it does it as much as it once did. Mm. I mean, there was a time when we were younger, because you and I are the same age. Mm -hmm. We would go to a movie when we were kids and say, remember that great line when he said, remember when the guy then said, we <laughs> thought there was like cool lines of dialogue. Mm -hmm. You don't really hear people talking about lines of dialogue in movies today. Not too often. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be back. But that was still years and years. That was 30 years ago that Arnold Schwarzenegger said that. It was a long yeah. time ago. Right. Um, I'm talking about going back to the 1970s. Um, you know, lines from Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Right. Make my um, day. Lines from The Godfather. Mm -hmm. You know, if history has taught us anything, Mike says to Tom, his surrogate brother, is that you can kill anyone. What is it that we are applauding in movies today? And a lot of time it's, it's these effects that were actually shot before a blue screen or a green screen. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, something I feel crucial has been lost, but that's why I do these talks because I try to resurrect these older movies and like, let people say, wow, you know, wow, that's something. And most people will say after looking at these films, how come they don't make them like this anymore? <laughs> well, it's not that they couldn't make some of them like this anymore. It's just that the, the, the economic imperatives, right? The desires of these people that run studios make a lot of money and you're not going to make a lot of money making a movie like Chinatown, which has an ending where in the end it's the destruction of the innocent, right? Mm -hmm. You know, evil wins. Mm -hmm. uh, although we know that evil oftentimes does win. I mean, there are certain people that don't, um, you know, that are quote unquote above the law. We can't, they're untouchables in certain ways. But if another person, a regular person had done even one, one tenth of what that individual did, they'd be, they'd be throwing away the key on them. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so, you know, this is, this is the problem, you know, in our society. You know, we're, we're not all treated necessarily equally, even though, yes, we, we, we claim that that's what we're about, that we were, you know, founded on all this. But what we were founded on is that, you know, women didn't have a vote until 1920. Um, blacks didn't get a, men didn't get a vote until 18, you know, 63. And then, uh, what they really weren't able to use it until 1963 uh, because of the way certain laws were written. Mm -hmm. So um, films make us tend to remind us, you know, what our shortcomings are, you know, how we can mm -hmm. be better. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe you're going to say, well, you know, the film industry leans too far left for my, for my taste. Well, I mean, yes, as a result of what happened in the 1950s with the McCarthy witch hunts, right? they came down really hard on a lot of really talented people throughout the art artistic community, various communities. And they were stopped. They were silenced. I mean, some of them went underground. 
Uh, Dalton Trumbo would be a famous one, mm-hmm. right? I think it was Robert Rich. He won the Academy Award and nobody came up to get it because it was Dalton Trumbo and he was blacklisted. But, um, but we have to just understand that there are still filmmakers out there that are making movies that would appeal to you too if even you had a more moderate or even more right-wing sensibility. I mean, Clint Eastwood makes a lot of films that it actually, he's a very talented filmmaker. He's not on top of his talent in each film the way he is in his best films because he's extremely fast. He's extremely productive in that he, he's prolific. Um, so not every film is a fine, you know, finely polished gem. Uh, it's, some of them are rough around the edges a little bit. But if you have a sensibility that you find yourself thinking, well, I have a more of a, you know, moderate to right wing sense, you know, leaning. Well, there are those films that are out there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is something in the cinema potentially for everybody. Mm-hmm. But you have to go out there and you have to make it happen. You have to write it. You have to produce it. And you have to take the risk that, yeah, it's going to be very expensive to make this venture realized on the big screen. But um, in the end, if audiences don't come, you just lost yourself and whatever you put into it, time and effort, but certainly other people's money. So that's why studios really want to make franchise films. They want to make, well, we have a built-in audience for this. So let's remake that because it's like, that was really popular back, whatchamacallit. There's going to be a lot of people that want to see the latest update. So a movie like West Side Story is being remade. It's being remade by Spielberg. He'll make it, you know, his own. Is it necessary? As a result of that being remade, there's there's like some new voices that just aren't getting their chance because that slot was filled by a by something being recycled. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, the industry is going to have a, a lot on its hands, uh, you know, once this pandemic is over to see where it is. We were already sort of segueing away from going to actual brick and mortar theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be a real like, <laughs> I mean, this pandemic might be the, the, the major nail in the coffin for theater chains to really operate and, and ever thrive really again. Certainly not. They, it'll be a little while. Um, I mean, maybe certain ones and certain types of films will make people want to get back to the theater with a vengeance. But I'm thinking we're getting to the point now where people are more comfortable in their own home. And that's unfortunate because the real way an audience, you know, plays a role in any type of artistic, you know, event or spectacle that's going on on stage or on screen um, is really important for for the overall um, experience of what that film is. Mm-hmm. Right. It's meant to be before a big movie palace audience. I mean, watching watching Ben Hur, you know, in your living room, you know, I mean, the, the, you feel mm. diminished. Oh. I mean, you know, Lawrence, uh, you, know, you have a big, you know, maybe a big uh, television screen, but whatever. But mm-hmm. even and so and if you watch something like Ben Hur, what on your iPhone, something's <laughs> lost. Right. And so, uh, you know, William Wyler did not intend it to be that way. And the stadium seating, as much as people like it you're only, you're really not aware of anybody around you, except maybe the person next to you on either side, but it's as if you're at home. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you don't really sense the other rows ahead of you and behind you. Yeah. You can hear people, I guess, laughing in places or shrieking in places, but it's not the same as when you were in that one big, we were all in it together. Yeah. So it, it's, it's becoming even in public, a more insular experience. What has the movie experience become? I mean, it's, it once upon a time was like hanging out at the theater before hanging out in the lobby 
afterwards. There were couches there. They were big, right? There were a lot of chairs. There was something kind of exciting. It was, a, it was very exciting. It was an event. People mm-hmm. got dressed up. Mm-hmm. But now when people go to the theater, you know, movie theater, it's like we're all like in some form of our pajamas. Again, what has it evolved to? Mm-hmm. And so if that's your audience now, what kind of things can be going on in that screen that these people are going to really pay attention to? Well, a lot of action, a lot of violence, a lot of explosions, a lot of whatever. Yes. And see, that's, that's where, where cinema's hurting itself, that it's going too far in that direction. We're not saying there aren't some important movies made or serious movies on occasion, but again, it's on occasion and who's seeing them mm-hmm. and what kind of attention are they getting, what kind of exposure are they getting. Um, they're not really, uh, I mean, imagine Chinatown was a studio picture that was a hit in its day and it had a really dark tenebrous ending, mm. right? Today they would make that movie, uh, Noah Cross would be killed, you know, you know, um, Elvin Mulray would thrive, thrive and survive. She'd marry Giddies or something and they'd live happily ever after. <laughs> they have to have a happy ending and have mm. to have something that they could have a sequel with. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, and there'd be no power. There'd be no real moral lesson, you know, that you would, you would come out of it with. There'd be no real artistry. It just would be, yeah, sort of predictable spectacle that, yes, two hours of my life were filled. And so, yeah, what am I going to do next? Yeah. But meanwhile, the original Chinatown haunted you maybe almost for the rest of your life. Mm. It was so powerful. Mark Lepidula, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. I think this is going to be a wonderful presentation for films that changed America. Tuesday, December 15th at Smithsonian Associates. Thank you for your time today. We'd, we'd love to have you back and talk more about movies because this is it's, it's good stuff. Well, Paul, thank you for having me and thank you for your great questions. And you were very patient to let me uh, <laughs> oh, enjoy it. sort of expatiate the way I did. But oh, I will it. hopefully uh, see you again and Good. we can Hope have so. some further, further interactions. But you're a gentleman and scholar. Thank oh, you, sir. Thank you very much, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My thanks to Mark Lapidula, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program Tuesday, December 15th, 6.30 p.m. And the title of his presentation is Four Films That Changed America. Please check out our website for more details. My thanks, too, to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. And, of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience, for all your love, support, and friendship. Stay safe, be well, practice smart social distancing, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.